Welcome, everybody, to episode 87 of Bumper Sticker Faith. And uh, my name is Sam, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Mike Stanzik. Mike, how are you hanging in there? Uh, well, so, well, overall, <laughs> we, uh, we've been cheating, so we've been letting the new baby, uh, for those who don't know it, we just welcomed our fifth, so baby Arthur. Uh, we've been letting him sleep on us at night, so, uh, <laughs> you know, babies always sleep better when you do that, but now he... Uh, that that wears off quick, <laughs> so, so yeah. now he's not sleeping as well. So right now I'm I'm pretty zonked. Yeah, um, which is a technical term for really tired. <laughs> Arthur was born at nearly ten pounds, so in my yeah, mind, boy. in my mind, he's known as King Arthur, and okay. uh, <laughs> he's taken over and the bed too. Your wife might be slightly more zonked than too. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. After that ordeal and then feeding him. Yeah, and my wife is four foot ten and a half, <laughs> and she delivered a nearly ten pound baby. I mean, sometimes that's how it goes. I am not a large man. I'm five seven on a good day, <laughs> you know, one hundred and sixty five pounds, and I was nearly an eleven pound baby. Wow. wow. Yep. My father in law is almost exactly those stats, and and he was he wasn't uh, nearly eleven. But he was he was I think right on ten, and then uh, turned out to be a shorter man. So. But Mike, you're a big guy, six something. Six two, yeah. 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 Well, today on the show, we have uh, Dr. Scott Keith um, on episode 87. And I'm. this is a real treat for me, a uh, super treat for me. Um, I have have a little bit of a, I, I guess, journey with the podcast that you, Dr. Keith, uh, are have been involved in. I guess, first of all, before I tell that story, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, <clears throat> Dr. Scott Keith is the executive director of 1517. That's the name of the organization. And he's a co-host, one of the co-hosts of the Thinking Fellows podcast, which you do. Uh, one of the other co-hosts is your son, Caleb. So that's an that's interesting right. yeah, he thing. Helped, he helped us start it. Yeah. Out from a very young age. Um, yes, yeah, I think seven years ago now. So I think he was 19 or 20. And you're also a contributor to 1517 and to Christ Holds Fast. And he is the author of a book called Being Dad, which is the basis of our uh, conversation today about being a dad and about uh, fatherhood. And uh, you earned your doctorate from the Foundation House Oxford, uh, and where you studied with uh, Dr. James Nessingen. Nessingen. So Welcome to the show. Thank and, you. It's good. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. As I was saying, started to say, uh, I didn't get into podcasts uh, at all until I discovered your podcast, really, uh, about, yeah, I'm pretty sure Caleb was 19 because there was that kind of yes. reference. To, and that was around the year 2015 or 16, where- Yeah, that sounds right. 2015 sounds right to me. Yeah. Where things in, in my personal and family's life were just falling apart due to my sin and failure. And so it was kind of desperate times in, in my life. But I remember uh, discovering your guys's uh, podcast called Thinking Fellows. And it had a very, it, it was just what I needed. It had a very pastoral tone, yet it had a, a ton of theology, ton of grace, ton of direction. Yeah. And, and I, I would listen to those things. And I, and I have uh, two boys and there are so many car trips that we took together, you know, 
to to and from different places where we would listen to you guys and them as as younger kids like uh, ages twelve and nine and and now that twelve year old is twenty, my oldest wow. son, <laughs> and uh, he's about to get married in a week. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. And yeah, that's uh, a good story. He heard that I was uh, interviewing uh, you, and right away he was excited. Oh, that's great. So that's great. So well, he's about to, he's about to get married, um, and and Mike on the other end here just had their their fifth child, as we said, and so so I guess in both camps we're thinking a lot about uh, being dads, being fathers, and so I thought it'd be it'd be great to just kind of recalibrate and just and think about this as we're uh, kind of in the right in it. We're all each all three of us are at different stages. Of course, you have older kids. And, that, and grandkids. And grandkids, that's right. Yeah. Just so um, Yeah, Caleb, um, I'm not sure if when we started it, uh my first grandchild, which is Caleb's daughter, was born yet, or if Erica was pregnant. Um, but they're now on number four. She'll be due in October. Wow. And wow. so that'll be when that baby's born, that'll be our fifth, since my uh Caleb had three already, and then my daughter. Uh, Autumn just had a baby about six weeks ago. Wow. That's awesome. And I've always appreciated about, about, about you on the thinking fellows podcast. Um, everyone, each of the hosts has their own, you know, unique thing, but you were always kind of the, the, the quiet, more reserved, thoughtful, uh, member of it. But then I always love those moments when you kind of got a burr under your saddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that can, that like, can happen. I would really lean into listening to those episodes uh, because I knew it meant something for, for the, yeah. the calm, cool, collected guy to, um, to get agitated about something. And especially okay. when, you know, stuff started to happen around COVID in those early days. And, oh, yeah. and you guys were so prophetic and calling things out on that. Mm. Uh, way before anybody else was, when everybody else was terrified, uh, you were kind of questioning some things. But that's another story, I guess. Yeah, that was an, that was an interesting time. Caleb w- would say that's how I was as a father too. That most mm. of the time I was sort of really sort of contemplative and calm and really tried to keep the lid on things until I get, I guess, a good way to say a burr under my saddle <laughs> and then kind of look out. So <laughs> sometimes the uh, the king of the jungles got a roar. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so in 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 your in your book you talk about it's called Being Dad again and I'll put a link for everybody and I really encourage everyone to um to to look up the book and to get it. Um it's short, it's got uh, very compact wisdom in it, but then it's also filled with uh practical stories. And we'll talk why that is, I guess, during the episode why it has so many stories. But uh, the idea of being a dad and, and, or, or even having a dad, being a child, I mean, that runs so deep in our blood. Uh, and you say things in the book like, we need, we need dads like we need our next breath. Yeah. And as I've been thinking about this, I remember a story that I haven't recalled <laughs> since high school, since it happened, uh, but it, it was still important to me and it's still in there. But I remember a, a sociology class as a senior in high school that we took, and it was near the end of the year. And the uh, teacher of the class was having us uh, share our heroes in life. And at that time in the mid nineties, you know, you can imagine kind of the heroes that the, my classmates were saying, you know, one by one, we would say, 
who's our hero? And they'd say like rock stars or athletes or politicians, whatever. And then probably about halfway through one big kid named Travis, it was his turn to go. And he was a jock. He was huge. (laughs) He was very respected. And through tears, he just started saying, my dad is my hero. Wow, that's cool. And I just remember the whole class lost it. (laughs) The whole class just lost it. And then people were like saying, I want to change my answer. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think of him. Yeah. And then from the the next half of the class, everyone kept, you know, referring to their dad then. Yeah. And, but if, if a bunch of, you know, Gen X, uh, anti-authority kids in the nineties can be brought to tears at the thought of a dad that, I mean, as you say, that, that hits a real nerve uh, yeah. for us. Well, say what you will about Gen Xers, but you know, they're kind of hard and crusty, but they feel hard too. So yeah. it's not too point. surprising. That's yeah. a good point. So why did, talk, talk to us about uh, why you wrote, wrote the book, why you feel like it was an important uh, book for you to write. And because I know that uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt was a big influence and you kind of uh, were poking at him to write the book, but then he poked back at you and said, no, yeah. I think you should write the book. So why did you yeah, take that's that very on? Rod style too. Um, um, so I, there's, I guess it's kind of funny. If you were to ask me that question today, um, as opposed to sort of the answer I wrote in the book, it might mm-hmm. be slightly different today. Um, one of the things I write about in the book is the extreme need for fathers. And then I even touch a little bit on the statistics on the lack of fathers. Um, well, that's just, that's getting worse. And so Mm -hmm. if I were to sort of write it today, I I might use fewer personal reasons and more like hard objective reasons. Um, but originally it was kind of, it was very personal for me. My, my own father died when I was two years old and I, um, I have, if I have a memory of him, it's it's a super vague, super vague memory, and it's maybe two, you know, two very vague inc- uh, incidents in my life, um, and that's just sort of how the two year old brain works. I'm always I'm always like in awe of people that be like, I remember everything from when I'm two. I'm like, gee, I wish I did because I might have more memories of my dad, but I just don't. Um, so my entire life growing up. Um, and if you would know me, you know, I'm not like a very uh, emotional person on the whole, but I can honestly say that I felt a hole, you mm-hmm. know, there was, there was something missing there. And that's not saying that my mother didn't do an excellent job. My mom did an incredible job. Um, she raised me and my brother by herself um, and did amazing. I mean, my brother and I are, you know, quote unquote successful. We mm-hmm. we have families and homes and both still attend the church that we were raised in and mm-hmm. as did our kids. And so my mom did a, a great job. Um but there's still that hole there. And it's it's a it's a deep hole that when you don't have a dad you can't really explain. Although sometimes you see it you'll see it filled by um well-meaning people that step in, you know, um uncle grandfather in my case until he died an uncle in my case until he sort of divorced out of the family and then fathers of friends um for sure along the way whose names i'll never forget um and whose images i'll never forget 
Um, but what it left me with specifically was just a desire to be a dad. Mm-hmm. Like when you were asked, if you were to ask me when I was growing up, especially like in my, I used to freak my mom out in my teen years, like, what do you want to be? I would just say a dad. Wow. Like, and so as you're like wow. 15, 16 and dating and, you know, given what, you know, the reputation of Gen Xers when they're dating 15, 16, my mom was like always terrified of that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, nonetheless, um, you know, I did not become a father at 15 or 16 and yeah. waited until I was married um, to do this, but it was just the number one goal. Um, for me, that led to sort of um, an aimlessness. Um, otherwise, like I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, ending up with, if you knew me when I was a teenager, in fact, I, I slightly keep into contact with one guy that I was good friends with when I was in high school. And he's just like in just disbelief <laughs> that I have a PhD and, um, these type of things. Cause this was, this was not on the plan for me. Um, and because there was no plan mm. and except for to be a dad and to meet, you know, a woman that I wanted to marry and to make a family and however, however mm. that should happen. Um, and then sort of through the course of my life, I did end up to my shock and awe going to college and <laughs> uh, meeting Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. And I like to say I majored in theology, um, in college and, specifically in a lot of ways to study with Rod. And, um, you know, so he was supposed to be teaching me theology. And I went to Concordia University in Irvine at the time, the theology faculty was very small. I think there were four people on the Mm -hmm. theology faculty. So if you majored in theology, you took a lot of classes with the same professors. Um, Mm -hmm. And I took a lot of classes with Rod, who's supposed to be teaching me theology. And he did, but he also just taught a lot. (laughs) I mean, an inordinate amount about the importance of being a dad Hmm. um, and fatherhood. Um, He would refer to the work of one of his early mentors, a man named Dr. Paul Fairweather, who I mentioned in the book. Um, And uh, it just was different. Um, So Rod would talk about the father's primary role in the home as being the one who forgives sins, Hmm. you know, and, and I'd never heard that before. Like I, I had heard uh, sort of your kind of some of your normal Christian answers, which are like the head of the household. And I don't disagree with this at all, but sort of um, even the enforcer, you know, that's a real popular theme there. Um, You know, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of stuff. And so when Rod was kind of going the other way with things, it really caused me to, to think. And um, by that time I had, we had had Caleb, um, again, everything is kind of late, not marriage, but everything else is kind of late for me because I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I didn't actually get to Concordia until I was 25. Um, and so we had Caleb and it just changed the way I, it's it'd be easy to say it changed the way I looked at being a father, but it mostly changed the way I looked at my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then my other son. And then my daughter, um, you know, and, you know, I started to see them not as people whose I had sort of the primary responsibility of just making sure they weren't uh, um, a screw up in life, um, which that civil application of fatherhood is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but primarily that the job was to make sure that they know that they were not only loved by me, um, but we're loved and forgiven by, by Christ Jesus. And, um, 
you know, you're able to see some things now. You're able to see your kids as sinners and know that in that way, um, they're just like you, <laughs> that, you, that they're maybe even sinners because of you. <laughs> and right. um, at the end of the day, that um, if you can do something really good for them, it would be to model in your own sinful and flawed way, the forgiveness that they have in Jesus Christ in their everyday life. And so, I mean, long story short, um, that's what Rod taught me through his various stories, mostly about his father to him, not about he as a father to his children, which, but I'm, I know they're his children. So I know it's true there too. Just um, so people can uh, see or hear what you're, what you're getting at. Could you tell uh, Rod's story uh, with the Buick? Uh, sure. Because I think that'll that'll. I'm allowed practice, but I'll, I'll go. I'll go for it. <laughs> but that'll illustrate um, what what you're getting at. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So, so Rod tells the story of um, when he was a teenager, 16 or 17. Um, he inherited his father's old car, which was an old. And Rod is, I mean, 80 now. So we're talking like a 19, probably like a 1950s Buick here. You know, you think 1950s Buick from like old movies with this giant front end, um, you know, it's got a giant V8 in it and enough room in the engine compartment that you could literally crawl inside the engine compartment and work on the V8. Um, So it's this kind of car. And he says he's out with his uh, high school fraternity friends. And I'm like, what the heck is a high school fraternity? (laughs) Every time he'd tell that story, I'm like. My gosh, you're so old. Okay, I love you. Um, <laughs> high school fraternity friends, um, and uh, they were drunk, and that they were sort of so he's driving drunk, and that they're creeping, sort of out between um, two buildings to sort of see if they can make a right turn or something like that. But the nose of the Buick is so long, uh, they can't seize, and he's creeping out. Um, he gets slammed into, you know, by another car, and he says he's shaken and he's scared and he has friends in the car and he's not sober or the, no, I don't know if he's not sober, but they've been drinking and he knows he's going to be in trouble. And the police officer calls his father and the father um, says, Rod, go get in the car. I'll take care of this. And he talks to the police, gets the cars towed. They take all of his friends home and he walks into the house and his mother is standing there. And um, I'm going to say it the way Rod says it, um, which is, is sort of uh, sometimes needs some interpretation. And he says, my father looked at my mother and told her to go in the other room, which was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And he sat down with uh, Rod. His father sat down with Rod and um, said, are you okay? And Rod said, I'm shaking. And his father, who was a physician, said, you are probably have a little bit of mild shock. It's okay. It'll pass. And he put his hand on his shoulder and said, Rod, you know what I think you need? And Rod said, well, what's that, dad? said, I think you need a new car. That one's totaled. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you tell that story mm-hmm. and it's a shocking story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, the reason Rod tells it is because it's it's sort of a shocking analogy to our forgiveness in Christ, right? You, mm-hmm. you get exactly what you don't deserve. Mm-hmm. Rod, in that case, absolutely did not deserve a new car. He deserved <laughs> punishment. He deserved grounding he deserved not to drive for a year all the instincts that sort of quote-unquote earthly good fathers would have to prevent this from happening again his father modeled the gospel instead Mm -hmm. and so that's sort of that's one of rod's stories uh there and that's what you mean by in, in the subtitle of the book it's father as a picture of god's grace 
Right. And you also refer to fathers as like foggy pictures of God. Right. Which mm-hmm. um, is just such a fantastic picture. But that, that's an important story, I think, to tell to kind of start off with so that people see the radical way you're defining what it means to to be a dad. Um, and, and especially this is true as, a, as the child gets older. You know, early on in life, you, maybe the dad has a different role. As you pointed out, the dynamics between the mother's role and the father's role, you know, early on versus later on. Um, but... Yeah, early on, you're yeah. kind of keeping them alive. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, maybe when they're a teenager too, but like early on, you know, there's it's increasingly there's, true the more you add. Yeah. Well, and it's like, um, the poor kids jumping off of tables. I'm sure, uh, there, there's sort of a, um, you know, uh, early on, there's some like aversion therapy, right? So, you, you know, you're my, I have an 18 month old grandson right now, and I go over to dinner at Caleb's house quite a bit. And, um, that his name's Edmund and he loves to be in the kitchen when his mother is trying to make dinner. And, you know, he knows the words, the stove is hot, the oven's hot, 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 hot. He'll say that a gajillion times and drive you crazy. Um, but this does not like prevent him from like trying to test this knowledge that he has by mm-hmm. touching the thing. And so, you know, you're not really looking in that instance for like a, a picture of the gospel. Um, you're looking in that instance to make sure that you're not taking him to the ER with third degree burns. And right. so you, you might swat his hand away. You might swat his little butt and say, get out of here, you know, whatever. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, and sometimes that has to, and we're, all, we're also not talking about permissiveness. Um, you know, permissiveness is never, never acknowledging that your child did something wrong. Um, so you, know, you just kind of pretend like you walk into a room and this is a chaos is breaking out and you just kind of pretend like nothing's happening mm-hmm. and you walk into your office and go do your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what we're talking about either. I'm specifically talking about acknowledging sin mm-hmm. um, and even mm-hmm. giving the application of the law in those cases. This sin has to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but then coming in with the proclamation of the gospel and the forgiveness too and and the magic and the scandal that is that forgiveness. Um, That's a helpful clarification because I because yeah. I think um, when I hear that story about the Buick, I guess in that moment it it would have been impossible for Rod to not be deeply affected by what he did, right? So right. the 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 weightiness of the forgiveness uh, is more likely to land right. because he is in mild shock, like he you know he right. killed everybody in that car, um, and so. Uh, to extend forgiveness in that moment, you know, it, uh, it probably asked quite a bit more from Rod's father, but at the same time, you can understand why it was so affecting. Yeah, I think of, you know, like, so let, let's go from like a year and a half year old kid to like a four year old, you know, who's just routinely rebellious, maybe mm-hmm. can be kind of mean spirited toward other kids or whatever, or, or something. Um, where a parent is having to routinely talk through the same kinds of behavior over and over and over again, um, because this child just isn't making it over the the hurdle, you know, is where, where does sort of a grace centered approach, where does it show up there? Or maybe it doesn't, you know, but, but maybe well, you can speak to that a little bit. No, I think, it, I think it does. Um, Luther, I'm going to, this gonna be a paraphrase and I'm going to mess it up, mm-hmm. but Luther um, at one point 
said that you know the 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 goal of the preacher is to basically recognize when the law has done its work <laughs> and then to jump in with the gospel and so the mistake that we make i think with an 18 month old with a four-year-old with a 16 year old with our friends with our wives with you know the whole nine yards is to just um not actually sort of hone that skill um mm. and just keep doubling down with what they know already, which is the law, uh, the, you know, the accusation for your listeners. I don't know how familiar they are with the category, but the, the accusation. That's what you I was going to say. We don't have a lot of Lutheran listeners. So probably yeah. like introducing us to the three uses of the law is probably effective. Well, let's even just stick it to the one. Okay. Now. So that the accusation, right? You did this wrong. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. Do you know who you could have hurt on and on and on again? My, your mother's four-year-old, your mother and I have had this, conversation with you a thousand times it's like a like an instagram meme like your kids are like uh tell them no rinse repeat until die you know and so on and on and on and so um you get that but the goal of the preacher and i guess what i'm arguing here is that the the father is sort of a preacher in the house and the goal of the preacher is to recognize when that's done its work like ask yourself the question how many times can i ride this butt until the butt's been ridden um enough to need some forgiveness um, in, in the moment, on the whole, on and on and on. And it's so no one's saying, I'm not saying at least, um, that, that that proclamation of you did wrong should never come. Um, it should. And um, I mean, your next interview can be with my kids and they can tell you how often it came. Um, but the, <laughs> maybe how often it still comes. Um, and But the, but to, to to try to be that kind of preacher that knows it's done it. It's done it. The accusation has done the work. Now, now what? And I think in that story, the, the gift that Rod's dad hit, had was to recognize that the natural implications of the law without even sort of the proclamation of it from the father's right. the son's ear had already done the work. Yes. And, and now what? Right. So can we hone in on that a little bit more? Um, I don't want to belabor a point. I, I realize there's probably a lot to, to cover, but no, this is important. Let's um let's really hone in on how do we know when the accusations done its work. So, you know, I, on the one hand, my instinct is to say, well, it's when the weightiness of our guilt lands, you know, but there's something kind of gross about a parent like laying a guilt trip, like that being the nature of this. It's part, mm -hmm. part of the beauty of spanking, Tim Bailey points out. Um, a, a pastor I appreciate. Part the part of the beauty of of the rod is that it's just it's done, it's over, and there isn't yeah. a, a, there's no belaboring. Yeah, there's not an emotionally manipulative quality to it. And so right. well, there can um, be. Right, there can be, yeah, of course. But um I guess in the way that I'm I'm picturing it, part of the beauty is that you you can leave it behind you, you know. Right. Um, so uh but but what that runs the risk of is is that it's easy for a kid uh you know to just walk away and not really internalize any guilt. So is what we're going for sort of a guilty conscience and then you know the accusations don't work, or is it <laughs> is it broader than that? One of the things I say in the book that I just think we just we just as I'm not a pastor, but as uh, pastors often don't and parents often don't is um, 
as I say that I watch a lot of parenting and they just don't really care about it. Um, but whatever, um, parents that do care and are trying to do a good job, even often don't, it's just how common the, the, the law, or let's just use the word we've been using the accusation, um, or the, the rule, right. Do this, don't do that is in our everyday lives. Like, and especially in the lives of children, um, children on the whole, unless they're being parented really, really poorly, don't make a lot of independent decisions, if any whatsoever. Right. So their whole life is controlled by someone else, um, which, you know, that makes sense to try again, you're trying to keep them alive. You got five of them. It's, it's a daily grind to just make it sure that they're still breathing at the end of the day. And so um, that has to happen, but in it having to happen, it means that it's, they know it, right? This this is not unfamiliar territory to them. When you tell, when you tell that four year old for the ten thousandth time that they should not hit their sister over the head with a toy, um, they know what you're going to say before your mouth opens. Yeah. At that point, okay. They're not. One of the things I say in the book is they're not dumb. Like they're they're just not. They know it. You're not telling them anything they don't know. So one of the tasks is to recognize, I think, to recognize that, right? Mm -hmm. You can lecture, you can spank, whatever. I was a lecturer more than a spanker um, that I never spanked, but I'm a lecturer. (laughs) So that's my inclination. Um, And, uh, but I didn't, I was never under the illusion that I was all of a sudden going to say something that was like, Oh, that's the key. Oh, you mm. finally said it, Dad, on our 10,001st conversation about this same thing. You finally said the thing that clicked for me, and now I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, we both, let's not lie to I mean, I could say this about my yeah. grown children. Let's not lie to each other. I know you're still going to do this. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, I need you to know that it's not okay that you did and that that's a sin. Um, but I also need you to know that I'm your father and I stand here in the stead of Christ. And I'm telling you, you're forgiven for that sin. So that's the difference between permissiveness and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we most often, um, I need to have the conversation for the 10,000 and first time that you did this thing that is wrong. It's wrong. You shouldn't do it. And there's probably a punishment from me attached to it. And there's probably a life in like in Rod's case, a life punishment that the world and sort of the universe Mm -hmm. and God are just sort of enacting on you naturally here. Um, but the thing that you'll never get in your daily life that is the thing we tell them in church that if they don't have a reference point to it is harder to accept in church and to or integrate organically so that they live it and stay in the faith is it this forgiveness can happen here too and it and i think it's a good idea if if fathers kind of set out to say hey i'm as often as i can i'm going to be that voice mm. now you're going to mess that up like you are going to get angry and you're going to wait and you're going to have a wife who reminds you that you stink at it sometimes and uh, you know and but it's these are this is like in a sense this is what we're trying to be more than what we probably most often are that's great
I appreciate that uh, distinction between permissiveness and grace too, uh, because I would be one who struggles with more permissiveness. Thinking as I'm being permissive, I think I'm being gracious, but I'm but I'm not. Yeah. Um, and so we hear the words like grace and truth thrown thrown around a lot, and and I think Christians think, well, we just just need to be gracious, just be gracious, gracious, gracious. But um, uh, I've come to learn that y- you can't be, y- you have to put truth before grace. You can't put grace before truth. Uh, yes. and, and so you you have to, we have to know what the truth is, whether we're confessing our own sin or somebody else, theirs, but you have to be authentic. You have to walk in the truth. You have to, once you, when you find the truth, grace comes after that. Um, but not really the other way around. I don't think at least no. not from my experiences. Cause when you're, when you're hiding, when you're, yeah, when you're pretending. That- well, at the end of the day, as a pastor too, I would assume, if you refuse to acknowledge that the people you know, to whom you're pronouncing forgiveness are sinners, what forgiveness are you pronouncing? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it's not just about going in and telling your kids all the time, hey, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. It's there's real life going on here. And this real life right. is messy and it's lived with other people that you say you love. And let me tell you from personal experience, those are the people that you are going to sin against most often, starting yep. with with your spouse, down to your kids and up to your parents, you know, and on and on and on. <laughs> and that this life that God has put us to, into together as something that we call a family is the one where uh, you are first going to hear the words, I forgive you. Um, mm-hmm. I would add in the name of Christ um, mm-hmm. and because it's his forgiveness that you're passing on. You're a mouthpiece there, right? This is John 20 stuff. Um, you're passing on Christ's forgiveness as a, as a mouthpiece. They're going to hear that first there. Hopefully they're then going to hear that at church. And then hopefully this is like part of their being. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that, um, you know, as uh, I, I'm an, I'm a deep believer um, in sort of the, the, Romans uh, 10 language that, you know, this, this faith comes by hearing, um, this hearing mm-hmm. comes by the, uh, the word of Christ. Um, and that it's not only comes that way, but it's sustained that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, that's, this is the, this is the goal. Like as a parent, what's as a Christian parent, what's the goal? Well, it's, of course, you don't want to raise a bunch of sociopaths. So you're trying to do your best to make them. So that they're quote unquote contributing members of society when they grow up. But I want them to stay in the faith. Right. Like, and then I want them to marry in the faith. And then I want them to have children who are brought into the faith. Yes. Um, And then I want those children to be raised in the faith and to stay in the faith. And so the question of this book is, you know, not how do we make that happen, but how, how does God tell us that that faith is engendered and sustained? And as fathers, is there a way that we can contribute to that? Are we called to something more than just to be more than just a disciplinarian? Or are we called to occasionally be that foggy picture or that mouthpiece? And you give many stories in the book. And the in the ultimate story in the book is that from Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son. And in the story of the prodigal son, you give pictures of of law doing its work. Yeah. And of yeah, yeah. and of grace and of and of a father. So uh let's let's pivot and talk about that story because it's it's the backbone of the book. Sure. I mean, we could go probably another couple hours yeah, on prodigal son, but um, at the end of the day, I mean, if you think about it this way, um, we always 
the title that the editors of Bibles put on it, the prodigal son, always sort of pictured colors our picture of how we view that particular parable. Um, and the picture that it creates is that it's the story of one son, when in fact it's not. Um, it's the story right. of a of a father with two sons. Um, and every time I teach this, I say, as a father with two sons, um, you know, and if obviously one's older and one's younger in most cases, um, <laughs> you know, the, the the minute Jesus says there was a father who had two sons, you're like, oh, I know where this story is going. All right. Um, so, and I like to say when Jesus teaches parables, um, he, he gives some parables that are references where the entire thing um, or the entire setup makes a lot of sense to the hearers then and hearers now. He tells some where the entire thing, like the setup makes no sense, like treasure hidden in a field. It's a weird one. Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense um, until you sort of actually work through what's going on. But this one, you know, a petulant younger son and a faithful <clears throat> older older son. Yeah, we get that. Yeah. Um, so this is what's happened. The younger son comes and says, hey, give me what's mine um, so that I may do what I want with it. The father does it. Um, the younger son goes off to a far off land. He spends all that money in a very short amount of time in licentious living. He ends up in this far off country and that country goes into famine and he's in great need. And while he's in great need, he uh, says to himself, even my father's servants uh, eat better than I am now as he's hired out to a pig farmer to eat, you know, to look at pigs eating pig slop, but still not given anything to eat. He says, I'll go back to my father and I'll say, hey, make me as one of your servants. Um, I know I, I know I'm not worthy to be called your son, um, but maybe make me a servant. So he heads off. And uh, the story goes, as he was yet a long way off, the father saw him, took compassion on him, and ran toward him. He embraced him. He kissed him. He put a ring on his finger. He put shoes on his feet. He put a robe on him. And he looked at the servant next to him and said, quick, go fill the, uh, kill the fattened calf uh, and invite all the neighbors because we have to have a party and celebrate. And then it will say something like, uh, and the older son who was working diligently out in the field as older sons tend to do, um, mm. heard the ruckus going on at the house and came near to the house, didn't go in the house, came near to the house and called a little servant boy to say, hey, come over here. What's going on here? And he said, well, your brother who was lost and has found his back and your father killed the fattened calf uh, and celebrated and he refused to go in. So at some point, the father comes out and entreats the older brother says, <clears throat> Uh, why don't you come in? He says, because this son of yours who squandered our money um, with prostitutes and licentious living has come back and you've killed the fattened calf for him and you wouldn't even give me a small goat with which I could celebrate with my friends. And the father said, son, I know you'll always be with me and everything that I have is yours, but we had to be merry and celebrate for this brother of yours was lost and is found. He was dead and alive. So that's sort of the synopsis of the story. Um, when I, you know, I, I very much used a book by a man named Helmut Tillich called The Waiting Father as sort of uh, to help with interpretation of this here. And basically what you get at here is just that um, at the beginning, when the younger son says, hey, give me what's mine so that I can do what I want with it, that this is the scandal, right? So for the hearers of the time, always important when you're looking at uh, studying parables, here's then, here's now. 
the heroes of the time, this is an absolutely scandalous story because this type of thing uh, would not, could not, should not happen. The younger son, if he had any rights to the family property at all, it would have been a very small percentage. Um, likely he'd had almost no rights to the family property. The older brother would have had all the rights and at the death of the father would have been considered the head of the household and would have been entrusted with um, caring, you know, making sure his younger brother and maybe his younger brother's eventual wife and family um, were taken care of, um, had a small piece of the land, whatever, um, to raise his family. You can, you get this like with uh, reread Jacob and Esau type thing, you know, um, what's being stolen there? <laughs> it's the question, you know? Um, so that's sort of uh, the context for this. So, that at hearing that the father gave in to this petulant son, that the hearers then would have been very upset about this um, because it would have shown that Jesus is telling a story about a bad father, right? So when we tell this, we mm -hmm. kind of think of the father as a good father, but Jesus is actually telling the story of a of what would have been considered at the time a bad father, mm -hmm. wow. father who, who um, did something he really should not do and would have put him on the outs with his community, mm -hmm. with his religious community, with his culture, um, and in fact, um, that the, the mechanism to give the son half of half of whatever belonged to him would have been very difficult, would have included uh, selling half of the land, selling half of the servants, selling half of the goods, selling half of the crops. Wow. Um, and then somehow getting money because his wealth wouldn't have been encapsulated in coins in a purse. It would have been encapsulated in belongings and property and crops and servants and that type of thing. Um, and this then explains why the older brother is so upset at the end, um, because, you know, a good portion, we don't know the exact amount of everything that he would have inherited upon the father's death is gone. And that the entire family, and you got to think the entire household, the servants that they're charged with caring for, um, maybe aunts and uncles and families connected. This isn't just, this is a household um, in this sort of ancient Near East sense. And that that's all jeopardized by what the younger son did. Wow. Uh, but you also get the idea that, okay, the son goes off. That's a very normal story. He goes to Vegas. He blows all his money. Uh, you know, 2009 hits and Vegas has got no money. And uh, <laughs> he's in deep need. He can't eat. And he makes a deal, much like we tried to make with God all the time. Hey, God, if you just pull me out of this fire. I'll, I'll never do it again. I know I can never be an elder mm -hmm. in the church anymore, but maybe at least I can like uh, vacuum the floors on Saturday night before services type thing. Um, and he tries to make this deal and the father doesn't want the deal. The father doesn't want another servant. The father wants his son back. Um, the son believes he gave up his inheritance by grabbing it too early. The father says, you can't give up your inheritance. You belong to me. And so when he returns, um, the father puts shoes on his feet, which, you know, the son wants to be a servant. The shoes, the sandals on his feet would uh, make him be recognized by everybody that came into the house as a member of the family, not a servant. Servants were barefoot. Family member wore sandals. Puts on a ring on his finger. Many scholars believe that what Jesus is talking about here is a signet ring. So the, the mechanism by which um, the son can go into town and make contracts to sell the rest of the property if he wanted mm -hmm. to. And then at this point, everyone's like, why are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Like give him, a, give him another Buick to wreck. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. That's the point. Yep. It's the gospel. The gospel's crazy. Um, 
put the robe on him. This is sort of the robe of righteousness, the covering that is Christ. When I teach this, I'll say this robe would have been the father's robe so that, you know, a, a passerby walking by the house, looking into the house, if he saw somebody walking around in this robe would assume it's not this son who ruined the family, but that it's actually the father. Um, you also kind of get asked a question, how does the father see him coming from a long way off? I mean, obviously this father was waiting around, hence the title of the book, The Waiting Father, waiting around, looking for him to come. Um, still not living as an upstanding member of society, kind of this ne'er-do-well on the roof uh, in a lawn chair waiting for an even worse son to come home. Um, and then the father does a really scandalous act, which is he kills the fattened calf. We hear that and we go, so what? He probably had a million calves. Um, you know, the fattened calf is uh, is meant to signify their most valuable property. So after the son had taken most of the property or a good portion of the property that the family already held, uh, the fattened calf is meant to signify the most valuable thing that they had left, which explains why the older brother is so upset about it at the end. And then what does the crazy old father do? And he kills the fattened calf, you know, um, so... He doesn't sell the house, but he maybe like uh, sells the, the, you know, the Buick, <laughs> the most important thing that they have besides the house um, and invites all of the friends who hate him because he's such a bad father over to a party to celebrate the return of the son that they also hate because mm -hmm. he ruined this cultural icon in their community. Um, you know, it just shows that it doesn't matter if people hate you or not, they'll show up at your house for free food. Um, so... <laughs> That's what happens there. And they're having a party. And uh, this father who's uh, shown himself to be, you know, you could say um, permissive, but at the end of the day, you know, the son, the son had, had faced the consequences um, of his actions. He had lost everything. He was starving to death. Um, and this far off line came home and the father shows him mercy and grace in a truly scandalous way. And we sometimes hear this and we're like, oh, this is such a good story. It's a scandalous story. <laughs> well, this is absolutely scandalous that the father did this. Um, the older brother comes back and he acknowledges this. I mean, basically what the older brother comes back and does is he acknowledges the scandal. He says, you're crazy. I should put you in a home. Um, you already wasted a lot of what we had by giving it to him in the first place. He blew it with prostitutes and gambling. And now you you've given up the 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 thing we had of value left so that you could throw a party for people that for your sons and the people that hate you can come and celebrate you're nuts uh you wouldn't even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends and yet you treat this awful kid of yours like he's a prince and the answer is he is a prince um and the answer is that you are too son um and that the father acknowledges something that we sort of don't realize in the beginning he says, son, you're always with me. Um, and then he says the next one, which is the real gut punch, because it makes you realize that what the father had to do at the beginning was actually sell everything he owned and give it to both sons. And every that I, everything that I have actually belongs to you. Um, but we had to do this. And here's the point. When a sinner returns to the father, there's no choice. You have to throw a party. You have to give everything that you have in order to bring the son back. You don't get to just continue on with tough love. The choice that the father has towards you when you're a sinner that returns and towards us when we're the father looking at 
our children is that the return of a sinner son means that you make them a son again and that mm-hmm. you throw a party and you make everybody come and acknowledge that this is your son. So that's which is the, what the father does for us. That's the moment in parenting though, that uh, this is bringing up for me that w- when you see the look in your child's face, when the law has done its work and they have exhausted all their resources, that's the point where you have a the decision as a father do I continue to load law on them or do I be like God the Father and show grace? That that's the point. Because in this in the story, as you point out, all the other all the characters are relying on the law from start to finish. Even, start to finish. even the licentious son at the beginning was relying yes. on the law of inheritance. <clears throat> Right, a claim, a claim to saying he's relying on the law to get his desires and weird needs met, you know, by this licentious living. He's relying on the law there, and as he's formulating his plan to come back, and I'm going to do this and that for God or for the my father, I'm going to be a servant. That's still him relying on the law, and so he he had to exhaust what the law could do for him. He had to come to realize that the law is done; it can do nothing else for me, and then. The only thing left, well, he couldn't do, and he had to depend on on, yeah. on the father, and he didn't even realize it. But yeah, it's worth it's worth hearing sort of a longer explanation of that because you can get into some of the details of it. But um, I, I love what you just said. I mean, every character—I might steal that the next time I teach this. Every character <laughs> from the beginning, um, you know, is relying on their claim to the law. Mm-hmm. I know? think. The community members, the older son, all of them. Yep. Yep. And it's a powerful thing to to think about. Um, it's very easy easy to become embittered as a parent toward your children who demand a lot of discipline. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't uh, stop when they grow up, buddy. <laughs> right. And I, I think. To see the, as you said, the scandalous generosity, the scandalous grace of the father and the in the story of the prodigal son. I mean, it it why are we embittered toward our children? It's because they're asking something of us that we feel we shouldn't have to give, right? They are not entitled to this much time from me. They aren't entitled to forgiveness again. They aren't entitled to keep uh, me awake to, one more night. Right. Um, you're bad <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you are right. They are yep. not entitled. Right. And we are not entitled to grace. Right. Um, but if we are to be a, to be fathers who reflect the father, which is the only holy way to do it. Any, any other way of being a father is sin, you know, um, like the, uh, the only holy way to dispatch our office is to give, even though the children are not entitled to to that giving. Yeah, that's that's also a very good way to say it. I mean, that's that's very clear, right? Um, you wonder, and this, like I said, this doesn't stop necessarily when they grow and they're grown and quote unquote right. gone. Oh, absolutely. Um, because it you know, because it will it will feel like a squandering of what you gave them prior, right? In their yeah. upbringing, if they yeah. if they go wrong, or even if they're just confused in ways that you feel like you should have that. That you you this isn't how I brought you up. This, and this your sin like, will you know. you know help you point out little things that probably don't even matter that they're not doing the way you would do, and that you know you feel like 
and then they'll do big things. And then, um, you know, I said, you know, you're not, they're not entitled to one more of your sleepless nights and sort of your head went to your little baby in your bed and my head went to worry mm, over yeah. big things, you know, right. um, big life things. And uh, they're not entitled to that. They're not. Yeah. But that is, that is the gospel. <laughs> you also aren't entitled to uh, one more sleepless night after the father. <laughs> right. Mm. And um, out of all but, the family no. members and people in your in in your child's life in your wife's life too so just bringing this all back together uh dads are called to be the the bearers of that uh grace that's modeled in luke 15 they're to be that voice they're to be the one source maybe not one but they're to be make sure that they're they're bringing that rather yeah, than just and, law over and over. That's the unique calling. That's what you're arguing. That's what the book's uh, arguing, getting at. Yeah. And I always, I'm always careful to say when, you know, this parable is about Jesus. Okay. Right. Um, yep. This isn't about you as a dad. Um, <clears throat> right. What I'm saying is there are some things that you can glean from it. Um, and this is all in the context of the importance of your picture, your children seeing pictures in their life that it will never match the picture of Jesus perfectly because you're a yeah. sinner, but that are recognizable. Um, so right. they hear this parable and they recognize something in their life, some extreme forgiveness um, from you. And they say, well, gosh, maybe this could actually be true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't, you don't want them to walk away from their life when they grow up after leaving your house and never having encountered any moment in their life where they said, well, maybe this could be true because I've seen something a little yeah. bit like it before yeah and it, it and it arises so this role of the father as the one who forgives sin arises naturally like obviously the, the the mother forgives sins too like she's going to find herself forgiving sins throughout the day so why why is it necessary to specifically hone in on the father i think it arises out of just the natural role that the father plays in the home and the natural dynamics that arise out of uh gender differences mm-hmm. right um which is kind of a soapbox of mine fortunately um you know on this podcast i only co-hosted a few times so the listeners don't realize just how much of a soapbox <laughs> this is but my congregants do um so uh cr wiley brings up uh in, in a lecture he gave he he calls a father a judge mm. but think about why that is like in in a more traditional home this is especially true but i think it's true even when you do have two parents who are who are both working um outside the home uh but think about the father brings in a certain kind of distance to all the action that's happening in the home either because he's he's the one who works outside of the home or it's just because he's a male Mm-hmm. And, and that there, there's a certain kind of compartmentalization that takes place in his, at least normatively. And so he has a, a kind of distance from things and he, he walks into his home and uh, there there's appeals that immediately start being made of him, right? The, maybe his wife says, okay, well, the, here's, here's, do you hear what your daughter did today? You know, and um, you know, these sorts of things or, or the kids are, are instant, instantly saying, you're like, well, he hit me. And so, um, the, the judge is being appealed to. He has to hold court, you know, and, and this happens just naturally in the life of a father. What I, what, what I think is so important about this is that no matter what, fathers are going to find themselves having to dispatch the duties of a judge. And, and so this adds an essential nuance to all that, which is that 
if you are standing in as a father, you're standing in as as also a kind of archetype of a judge, as God the Father is also a judge. How does God the Father dispatch his role as not only father but judge through radical forgiveness? Now, my uh, my buddy Michael Bowman, he's <clears throat> one of the hosts of the Restless podcast, um, a postmortem on the young restless and reform movement. Um, he's a a friend of mine, and um, he he told me of this this thing that he sometimes does with uh, one son of his that sometimes has has some disobedience issues routinely where he'll he'll call his name like hey come you know, the stern voice and then his son will come up and then he'll just give his son this big hard embrace you know so the son comes expecting another another mm-hmm. spank another set of discipline instead uh what michael does is he he sets up the expectation for judgment and instead gives this this mm-hmm. giant embrace um that's kind of a i guess a picture of what i'm, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to yeah do. i i I think that's a, a good picture that probably um, needs to be sussed out a little bit too, because I think at the end of the day, when we say judge, we think the declaration of your guilty, right? That yeah. comes from right. a judge. Right. Um, sure. But this is yeah. not the only thing a judge does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, or maybe, maybe our current sort of legal structure isn't the best example but at the end of the day the judge um can also acquit mm-hmm. right and yeah. say um yeah, you're forgiven and, it, and when you were saying this it really reminded me of um we're doing a romans bible study at our church or i'm doing a romans bible study at our church and we're about to get into uh romans 4 just kind of funny because the language it's used in romans 4 you know what does it say? This is verse three. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works wages are not credited as gift, but obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, when I first was, you know, sort of taught the Greek on that, what one of the things that you learn is that credited language is um, it's like, it's, it's a legal uh, word. In other words, it's, it's like the word that the judge would say, um, it's a declarative word from a bench. Um, you are forgiven. Um, and this is going to be credited to you as righteousness. Um, and what you get there is the idea that the judge can actually uh, acquit even the guilty um, in this sense, right? So, and that you can be credited. And this is, I think, in why th- this should be sussed out a little bit more. And I actually kind of like it because you're, your picture of the reality of a father when he comes home or steps in from his home office or whatever, uh, just that uh, you are now the adjudicator is, um, is absolutely, I mean, from my memory is absolutely correct. It's like um, your wife has petitions, your children have petitions. (laughs) These petitions don't always match. Um, You're asked to decide. Um, I mean, we can get into some of that. Like, I think, I think one of the, the, most dangerous things that society has taught us in regards to our children is that um that spouses always have to agree on the correct approach and show a show a united face Mm -hmm. um now should they show a united face sure yeah absolutely they should but i always said well what if i thought that or let me throw it the other way what if my wife thinks that something that i'm doing regarding the children is really evil in the moment right 
Should she just show a united face because we're in this together, even the evil? Right. Um, what if I'm spanking a child and it's going too far? Should mm. she show a united face and not tell me to stop? Right. Like, I think these are some things that uh, we need to ask when we look this. If I come in, now flip it around. If I come in and I, you know, I was at work the whole day and I see that the day has just descended into chaos. What's the most gracious, effective thing that I can do in the moment? Is it just to back every play that my wife made that may or may not have helped lead to the chaos? Or is it to, as Rod says, give her the credit card and tell her to go shopping and sort of <laughs> he tells sort through the sort through the mess yeah. Rod um, from, tells a that story. from a fatherhood yep. perspective you know so um that's <laughs> you know i i can honestly say um to a degree i did that several times growing mm -hmm. up now it's a very dangerous thing to give my wife a credit card and tell her to go shopping so i probably you know found what cash I had left. So there was a limit on it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, and this is not speaking against women at mm -hmm. all. What a difficult job. Like if I am at work in your home with five kids, the, put me in that situation. And when you get home, feel free to give me the credit card and go on my merry way and you'll untangle my mess because I'm sure right. that after eight hours of dealing with five unruly children, I've, oh, I've contributed to some part of the mess. I, yeah. I would freely acknowledge this. Um, very intense. Yeah, it's very intense. It's very intensive, right? Um, yeah. Just time intensive. Like, mom, 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 mom. My gosh, I want to yeah. like throw one of you in the closet for a couple hours. Um, yeah. So, yeah, this is, we have to stop seeing, like you said, these gender differences, our way of dealing with things, our different callings from God in, you know, as part of the family as offensive, you know? Yes. I there cannot are, say to the eye, should I pluck you out? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. they're a feature, not a bug. Yeah. And, and more like gender differences, uh, the, the, the mom, her job is to keep the thing alive. <laughs> like, Oh, well, like, you know, I think I say in the book, it's been a while since I've read it, yeah. but this, their love is like sunshine. It's like yeah. always there. It's um, to nourish, it's to keep alive, preserve, nourish, keep alive, but then preserve. the dad's role is to Birth. set free. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you point that out in the book. The mom's role is to keep alive. Basically, the dad's role is to help to set free Right. Uh, once, you know, the, the law and everything has done its work. Um, and the only reason it's even worth having this discussion in a way is because it's so overlooked in our mm -hmm. current society. Right. We, and I we, mean, we need both. And you need yeah, both. Yeah. And the role of, I mean, you're not going to hear from society. Um, and I say that generally knowing that it's an ambiguous term. Mm -hmm. um, but the, this conversation, you will hear uh, the late, the woman can do both. Yeah. You don't, you don't need this guy. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. And if you don't, it. don't believe me on that sort of the fatherless birth statistics, even the rise since I wrote the book, mm -hmm. Um, should be some indication of the fact that this message is getting through um, the fatherlessness, um, the familylessness, um, the lack of marriage, the delaying of having children. Um, yeah. These metrics are all moving, I guess, depending on how you look at it, depending on how I, how I look at it, in the wrong direction. Um, I mean, in a sense, writing being dad was untimely because it was about 10 years too early or seven years mm -hmm. too early. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, 
we're we're living in a we're living in a an age when all of the things that I'm sure you guys talk about on in this show um are just accelerated exponentially and I can't even explain why other than the influence of the devil and literal mm. demons possibly yeah. but um it the exponential spreading of these ideas that not only are men not needed but fathers aren't needed families aren't needed marriage isn't needed children aren't needed mm. people are plague mm. you know it's like yeah what are, what are we doing here yeah i want to if it's okay as we uh wrap up i want to sort of wrap up around another um another question so uh fathers being a dad and having your own sin and failure to deal with as you as you parent so if if um if you as a father live in um, shame because of some persistent sin or failure, then I believe then then that's the way you're going to parent. You're going to parent according to shame and the law too, rather and than fear. grace and fear. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what do you say to dads who are too ashamed to step into their role as a kind of father that you describe because they have their, their own issues? How do you help those guys? Or yeah. Say, I, um, would it, in some ways, are you also talking about dads who kind of feel like that feeling of uh, um, like these kids need a different dad? Yes. You know, like, you Absolutely. know, just weighed yeah. down heavily by yeah. their own imperfections. And there's somebody that um, that's connected to my my church, uh, used to be a, a member there elsewhere now. But, um, you know, he, he uh, quips like, um, you know, uh, first I, I wanted to. Uh, to make my kids the best people they possibly could be. Now I'm just trying to minimize the amount of visits <laughs> to a therapist that they're going to require yeah. when they're in their adulthood, yeah. you know, but there's that, that really heavy feeling of like, these kids need need a different dad, you know, yeah. than me. I mean, Dave's all at one of our conferences, not too long ago. I don't remember which one um, did his sort of, it's, you can find it on our YouTube 1517 YouTube channel. I think it's even titled imposter syndrome. Hmm. And he yeah. sort of talks about how, mm-hmm prevalent imposter syndrome is in our day and age and this goes to everything but i'd say the, the first thing i mean there's kind of a specific question there which is i'm i'm a bad person um i'm weighed down with shame because of general and specific sin in my life i don't feel like i have the authority to forgive other people's sins right um i i would and again i don't know your tradition but i would say the first thing I would look for personally is a pastor who would absolve my sin in the name of Jesus, mm. who would actually, I'd go into his office, I'd confess my sins and he would put his hand on my head and actually forgive me in the name of Jesus. Not just give me advice, not just sort of be a therapist mm-hmm. to me, a spiritual therapist to me, but actually forgive my sin, you know, actually embody that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no way I'm going to be able to do that for anyone else, including my children, unless I, I have that in front of me, right? We all know that um, our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. We know that. But the reason that God put in place um, pastors to sustain us in our faith is so that we would know it for us here now, the mouth that Jesus standing before us right here, right now. And then we go on and we get the assaults of our, the devil, the world and our own sinful flesh. And as the week goes by and we maybe need it again, and we come into that, we're just a pain in the butt to that pastor because every week we're in there saying, forgive my sins. Um, if that's the, the 
the biggest burden pastors have. They're doing a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the first one. Um, Secondly, for the less specific, you know, I'm just an imposter here. My kids need a a different dad. You know, know, to degrees, um, we all feel that way at some point. Um, And it doesn't necessarily change the calling. Um, I I also did some work on friendship. And I think that one of the things that would solve this a little bit is if guys cultivated uh, good male friendships, Mm. male Christian friendships that um, were the forgiveness of sins explicitly and implicitly were present um, because that's what Jesus promises that when we, when two or three of us gather together there, he is among us. And what does he do when he's among people? He heals, he forgives, he does the scandalous stuff. Mm-hmm. He forgives sins on Sabbath days <laughs> and gives mm-hmm. Pharisees uh, knickers in a twist. So. I love that. I love mm-hmm. that. All right. We're going to, uh, wrap it up. Mike, any uh, last thoughts that, that you have want to leave the listeners with or questions or anything you have, Mike? Uh, no, I don't think so. That's been great. Good. Uh, Scott, anything, you, any, any other things that you want to get in? Um, well, Caleb would words? kill me if I, if yeah. I didn't add uh, check out the thinking fellows podcast yes. and, uh, the people that work for me would kill me if I didn't add uh, go to 1517 1517.org and check out what we do over there. It's pretty expansive and extensive. I think we have 20 shows on the podcast network, um, releasing a new online academy site, blogs every day, conferences, books, the whole nine yards. You have um, um, daily um, Bible studies too. Uh, oh, yeah. Bruce, the, Bruce Hillman's yeah, doing one. Through Chad the Bible. One. Yep. Through yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Podcasts that spend time going through every verse of the Old Testament. Podcasts that spend time going through every verse of the New Testament. Yeah. Field Guide to the Bible podcast. I mean, we just, a lot of resources <clears throat> over there at 1517.org. If you could go check them out. And uh, the podcast, well, the two that I'm on now are the Thinking Fellows podcast, and the other one is the Tough Text podcast. Hmm. Great. Well, uh, again, the book is called Being Dad, Father as Picture of God's Grace. And you said that you wrote it, you know, 10 years too early. Uh, you can still buy it. <laughs> so there you well, go. That's true. Everyone that's true. go out and go out and get it. And yeah. I just and feel it, like there's some other no, things to say about what's going on. Yeah. There. And as I read yeah. it, I, I'm thinking, wow, if you only knew at that time what, yeah. where we are at, you know, now, yeah. um, how much more does it apply to things now and how much more is, is this needed? So thank you Absolutely. so much for coming on our show and uh, for um, um, marking this occasion before my son's wedding. And yeah, congrats uh, as a, as kind of a, a benchmark, I guess. Yeah. So thanks everyone for uh, joining us today. This has been episode 87 of bumper sticker faith. You can go to bumperstickerfaith.com. You can learn how to support us uh, on Patreon. Ask us any questions. We're going to put uh, these resources in the show notes. Uh, So thanks, everyone. And uh, remember, don't go stepping in. No. Yeah. (laughs) That's right.